come now to our study of 1 Corinthians. Please turn with me in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. And even before we begin, I'd like to give a bit of a disclaimer. There's going to be a lot more to this text than we're going to be able to talk about today. I know that's always the case, but with this text, I, I, I feel it in a, uh, in a way that's, that's more unusual than others. So I encourage you to, to dive deeply into the theological implications and practical applications of, of this text on your own, maybe this afternoon and throughout this week, okay? So you got to hand it to the Christians in Corinth. They were passionate about gaining spiritual wisdom and becoming spiritually mature. Uh, They didn't want to waste their day scrolling through social media or playing video games or watching TV. They weren't content with apathy. They pursued spiritual wisdom, and spiritual maturity with a passion. But there was a problem. They ended up arguing with one another about who had the better spiritual wisdom and who was more mature spiritually. And as a result, their church was being torn apart. So Paul writes a letter to them, the one that we have in our hand. And basically he says this, stop it. Stop it. You you obviously don't understand spiritual wisdom or spiritual maturity. And in the portion of the letter that we're going to be studying this morning, Paul does two things. First of all, He teaches them a doctrinal lesson about spiritual wisdom, and then he expresses a pastoral concern about their spiritual maturity. And I'm going to tell you, folks, he doesn't hold back. Basically, he says, you're not spiritually mature, even though you think you are. You're acting like infants. I wonder if we understand what it means to be spiritually mature. What do you think of when you think of spiritual maturity? You think one who really understands the Bible and has excellent doctrine? Do you think of someone who can sing all of the hymns without even opening their book or Looking at the screen, you think of someone who dresses a certain way, maybe has a certain mystique or aura about them. What is spiritual maturity? Do you think, like I used to, when you envisioned a a really spiritually mature man, he had gray hair, black glasses, and really clean shaven with a suit on. That was my image of a spiritually mature man. 
Well, my prayer this morning is that we'll understand the true nature of spiritual wisdom and spiritual maturity and how to grow in both. All right, so let's read our sermon text. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to be reading from verse 6 all the way through 3, 4. So I know it's, it's on the long side, but I think that you'll see why I have kept these two sections together. This is God's word, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6, okay? I encourage you to follow along. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. Verse 13. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they're folly to him and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Chapter 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants, in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, Or another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? This is God's word. The people of Corinth in ancient Greece 
were obsessed with wisdom. You've heard of Pythagoras, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, all of them Greek philosophers. Last week, we learned about the sophists. Sophist is the the professional teacher of wisdom. That if you were to be in Corinth, especially during the Olympian games of that time, you would hear the sophists entertaining the wealthy over dinner and making a name for themselves with their persuasive rhetoric in the streets. The people of Corinth all had their favorites. I'm of Plato. I'm of Aristotle. They loved wisdom. Well, when the people of Corinth became Christians, they just began to pursue spiritual wisdom. But in their self-centered, status-seeking way, it seems that some of these Christians asserted that there was a, a special kind of wisdom that was only available to the spiritually elite, the, the inner circle of those who were truly spiritually mature people. They claimed that they had gotten that special kind of wisdom from, from their favorite teacher. And so some said, I am of Paul. Others said, I am of Apollos. I'm of Peter. And as a result, we learned in chapter 1 that the church is being torn apart. Paul, in essence, says to the church at Corinth, you don't understand spiritual wisdom. And you don't know how to get it. So in our section of this letter, chapter 2, especially verse 6 through 16, the first part, Paul teaches them a doctrinal lesson on spiritual wisdom. Here it is in one sentence. Spiritual wisdom is imparted to spiritual people by the Spirit of God. Let me say that again. Spiritual wisdom is imparted to spiritual people by the Spirit of God. And so in this section, verse 6 through 16, what we see is that Paul explains that there's two kinds of wisdom. There's two kinds of people. But there's only one way that you can get true spiritual wisdom from God. So let's look at those three things together. First of all, Paul explains that there's two kinds of wisdom. Look there in verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. When we talk about wisdom, you could give any number of definitions for it, but let me just offer this. Wisdom is a way of thinking that results in a way of living. 
even if you just think about the wisdom book of Proverbs, it's a way of thinking that results in a way of living. It's a mindset that results in a lifestyle, right? Everyone operates according to wisdom. It's, it's sort of like our operating system, just like a computer or your phone operates on an operating system. Wisdom is like our internal operating system, and everyone has one. The, Paul says there's two, two different kinds of wisdom. The question is, which one are you operating according to? So the first kind of wisdom, look there in verse 6, we'll call it the wisdom of this world order, the wisdom of this age. In verse 6, we do impart a wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age. The wisdom of this world system is a mindset that's entirely earthly, entirely human, resulting in a lifestyle that disregards God. It's embraced by the rulers of this age, and those rulers are both the human rulers and the spiritual rulers that are in opposition to God. And look what verse 6 says about the wisdom of this age and the rulers who embrace it. They're what? They're doomed to pass away. So this uh, mindset and this lifestyle that is entirely human, entirely earthly, is doomed to nothing but destruction. But Paul says there's a second kind of wisdom. Just like it was the wisdom of this world order, there is the wisdom of God. Look in verse 7. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. Paul tells us a number of things about this wisdom of God. First of all, we notice at the beginning of verse 7 that true spiritual wisdom is a secret, hidden wisdom of God. Did you ever think about God's wisdom as being secret and hidden? Why, why is God keeping it secret? Why, why is God hiding something if it's good? It's not that God is keeping his truth secret. It's that God's truth cannot be understood except through the cross of Christ and the power of the Spirit. God's truth cannot be discovered by merely human faculties like our eyes, our ears, our mind, our heart. True spiritual wisdom, unlike what Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and the like are peddling in ancient Greece, true spiritual wisdom is secret, hidden wisdom of God. Number two, true wisdom we see there in the middle of verse 7, was decreed by God before the ages. That means that before God ever created the earth, God had his wisdom. 
and, and he decreed his wisdom. He said, this is how my wisdom is going to take place. What that also means is that God's wisdom was set in place not because of the fall of man. All of the wisdom of God has been before creation, not in response to man's sin. That's really, really important. And look at the end of verse 7. True wisdom, this spiritual wisdom, was not only decreed by God before the ages, but it was decreed for what? Three words. For our glory. Huh. So before the earth was ever created, before man ever fell, God said that his wisdom was for our glory. In other words, God's decree was to ensure that his people would flourish in his glory and in his presence at the end of the age. So before this age ever started, God made sure that his people would be returned to glory at the end of this age. We see there the redemptive plan and grace of God, don't we? And he makes that explicit in verse 9. True wisdom is what God has prepared for those who love him. Verse 9, as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined? What? What God has prepared for those who love him. I agree with John MacArthur that this quote is often memorized, but it's also frequently misapplied. Paul is not referring to the wonders of heaven here. He is talking about the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God that he has prepared for those who love him. True wisdom. Secret, hidden wisdom of God, decreed by God before the ages for our glory prepared for those who love him. And what do we know from chapter 1 and chapter 2 so far? That the wisdom of God is accomplished through what? The cross of Christ. God's secret wisdom that includes all that God has prepared for those who love him is accomplished through the power of the crucified Christ. And what is that power? To make sinful human beings like me and like you righteous again with a righteousness that's outside of ourselves and not achieved by works. It, the cross is the power to sanctify us, to, to take us and set us apart for himself. It's the power to redeem us, to buy us back with the precious blood of Christ. How? Through the sacrifice of God's innocent son for and on behalf of guilty sinners like me. So Paul says there's two kinds of wisdom. And friends, they couldn't be more different. I mean, one is of this world, the other's of God. One is embraced by those who oppose God. The other is given to those who love God. One is doomed to pass away and the other leads to Glory after this age. 
Paul also says that just like there's two kinds of wisdom, there's two kinds of people. Did you notice? There are two kinds of people. Look in verse 14. The natural person, circle those words, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit. He doesn't accept the wisdom of God. The natural person thinks that the cross is folly. He's not under, he's not able to understand it because they are spiritually discerned. So what does it mean to be a natural person? A natural person is a person who lives on an entirely human, earthly level. That's all he is. Merely human. He's natural man, not spiritual man. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit. Why? Because they are not spiritual people. So there's two kinds of people. There's natural people, and then there are spiritual people. Spiritual people. Look, verse 14. The spiritual person, in contrast to the natural person, what? Does accept the things of the Spirit of God. He does understand that they are the wisdom and power of God. The spiritual person is able to discern all things, but is in himself judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so to, as to instruct him? But we, the spiritual people, have what? The mind of Christ. How do you go from being a natural person to a spiritual person? What makes a spiritual person a spiritual person? Coming to church enough? Reading your Bible enough? Doing enough good works? Well, that's not what we've learned so far in chapter 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians. If you just go back, turn the page and look at chapter 1, verse 2. Let's just take a little breadcrumb trail of what it looks like to be a spiritual person. Spiritual people are so because of God's work. God's work, not their work, to redeem them by grace, not works, through faith in Christ. Chapter 1, verse 2. The church of God that is in Corinth. Who are they? Those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Those who are called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Why? Verse 9. Because God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Spiritual people are those whom God has called into fellowship with his son, verse 30. And because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. Spiritual people are those who by grace through faith are now connected to Christ, which changes everything. Because Christ became for us, what? Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And now skip ahead to chapter 2, verse 12. And now we have not received the spirit of this world, but because of grace, faith, and Christ, 
we have received, verse 12, the Spirit who is from God so that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And as a result, spiritual people, unlike natural people, have a different mind. What does verse 16 say we have, church? The mind of Christ. We have the indwelling spirit and the mind of Christ. That is the supernatural life-transforming gift that you receive at salvation. That's the difference between natural people and spiritual people. It is the indwelling spirit and the mind of Christ. But there's only two kinds of people. The question is, which one are you? Have you been united to Christ by God's grace through your exercise of faith? Have you received the gift of the Holy Spirit? Do you have the mind of Christ? There's two kinds of wisdom. There's two kinds of people. But friends, there is only one way to understand true spiritual wisdom. Spiritual wisdom is imparted to spiritual people, how? By the Spirit of God. We see in verse 8, look at verse 8. God's wisdom is not understood by the rulers of this world order. None of the rulers of this age understood this. Why does he say that? I think it's, it's to emphasize that as powerful as the Roman rulers are, or as educated as the Jewish rulers were. They don't understand God's true spiritual wisdom. And how do we know that? What's the proof? Look there at the end of verse 8. If they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. God's wisdom is to restore you to glory through the work of the Lord of glory. But the Romans and the Jews got together, proved that they don't understand God's wisdom, and they put to death the Lord of glory. The very ones who were trying to do away with Jesus by crucifying him were in fact, Thistleton says, carrying out God's preordained and prior will. What appeared to wreck God's purposes turns out to fulfill it. You know why? Because that's how big and God, God is. <laughs> but God's wisdom is not understood by the rulers of this world order, nor is God's wisdom understood through human senses. Look at verse 9. How do we get God's wisdom? Well, it's not... Seen by your eye, heard by your ear, not imagined in your heart. So what Paul's doing here, which I have misunderstood and misquoted a number of times, I used to, I used to, uh, um, basically I would talk about how awesome, how awesome 
heaven or how awesome the gospel is by saying, man, what, what I hasn't seen or you, you've never seen anything like this. You've never, you have never heard anything like this. You've never even imagined anything like this. Those things are true. But that's not what this is actually being used in this context for. What is being used here? Paul is kind of paraphrasing. Have you ever noticed Paul does that by quoting the Old Testament? He doesn't always quote it word for word. And sometimes he'll take two or three scriptures and, and put them together. He's, he's paraphrasing Isaiah 64, 4 and Isaiah 65, 7 here. And he's, he's loosely quoting this to emphasize the radical divide between what humans can know and the divine secret hidden mystery known only to God. Paul's point is this, just as God's wisdom is not understood by the most powerful human rulers, it is not understood through the most perceptive human senses. God's wisdom is not seen through the most accurate vision, heard through the most sensitive hearing, or understood by the most imaginative mind and heart. So how do we get, gain, come to understand God's wisdom? Verse 10 through 12. Verse 10 through 12. These things. What things? All the things that God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received Not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who's from God, so that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Isn't that beautiful? God's wisdom is only understood through God's spirit, friends. So just like a person can only truly know their own thoughts, Now, after 35 years, my wife and I often share a brain. We'll be thinking the same thing apart from one another at the same time. And there are many times that I think I know what she's thinking. But after 35 years, I have come to know this. I don't. Because she's the only one who can truly understand her thoughts, her inner person is the only one who can understand her thoughts. Just like the Spirit of God is the only one who can understand the thoughts of God. I I like the illustration that MacArthur gives here. He says, so for a flea to understand a dog, it would have to be at least as advanced as a dog. For a dog to understand a man, it would have to be at least as advanced as a man. How much greater distance is there between creator and creature? 
We do not understand God's wisdom. And it is not perceived by our eyes, our ears, or our imaginative heart and mind. It is only imparted, given, and taught by God's Spirit. Since it's impossible for humans, like us, to understand God's wisdom, He graciously reveals Himself to us through His Spirit. God's Spirit's the only one who, verse 7, can understand the secret and hidden wisdom of God. You won't, I won't. Verse 7, understood because the Spirit was there before the ages when God decreed it. Verse 10, the depths of God. I can barely scratch the surface of God, let alone the depth. The Spirit is the only one, verse 11, who understands the thoughts of God. So love him or hate him, Karl Barth is right. God is known through God alone. John Calvin said it like this, to search for wisdom apart from Christ means not simply foolhardiness, but utter insanity. We can't get there from here without the miraculous intervention and work of the Spirit of God. And we have it. Verse 12. Read verse 12 again. We have it. We have received the Spirit of God. How? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And one of the primary ministries of the indwelling Holy Spirit that we have received in Christ is at the end of verse 12 so that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. Isn't that beautiful? Friends, this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. No one understands God's spiritual truth unless God opens their eyes and their mind to understand it. No one. From beginning to end, our salvation is wholly a work of God. And then the response of faith. Matthew chapter 16. Jesus asked his disciples, Who do you say that I am? Peter gave that famous Beautiful confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what did Jesus say? Blessed are you, Simon. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Where did Peter come to know that Jesus is the Christ? God did a work. Nobody knows that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, unless God does a work. As for the rest of the disciples, in Luke chapter 24, after his resurrection, Jesus met with his disciples and he reminded them all of the teaching of the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. I'd have loved to have been in on that lesson. But after the lesson, here's what it says. Then he opened their minds 
to understand the scriptures. They had heard that law, prophet, and psalm before. They never understood it until God the Son opened their minds to understand. Beginning to end, our salvation, the very fact that you understand the gospel is a miraculous work of God in your heart. Acts chapter 16, Paul arrives in in a new place, in a new town, meets a woman named Lydia, shares the gospel with her. It says formerly she was a worshiper of God, but look what it says next in Acts 16 verse 15. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. What does that mean? That she might have paid attention before. Paul might have done a good job communicating the gospel. But that really understanding the gospel required a miraculous work of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. One more. John really emphasizes this both in his gospel and in his letters. He gives us what he talks about as you have been anointed by the Holy Spirit. Mm, what does that mean? Anointed by the Holy Spirit. I think I've heard that before. And you have all knowledge. The anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. The anointing of the Holy Spirit is to teach us all things about the Lord Jesus Christ and his wisdom. That's what he says in his Gospels. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance what I have told you. When the Spirit of truth comes, Jesus says, he will guide you into all truth. Which means that we're not going to be guided without the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Praise God. Spiritual wisdom is only given to spiritual people and only by the Spirit of God. Paul gives that doctrinal lesson for a reason. Not just to teach us about wisdom, but because they were fighting about it. Because they were lining up under who? Human teachers. Because they were arguing about which wisdom was better than the other. So you just summarize all of this, and basically what Paul is saying here is this, since spiritual wisdom is the message of God's grace accomplished through the cross of Christ, since spiritual wisdom is the work of God's grace imparted to you by God's Spirit, then you have nothing to boast or argue about. Arguing about better wisdom is ridiculous. There's only one gospel. There's only one cross. Arguing about human teachers is ridiculous. There's really only one great teacher. 
And that's the Holy Spirit of God. Did you notice in verse 13? Just look there. This is what's happening right now. Verse 13. God's wisdom is communicated by God's servants. But it's really only taught by God's spirit. Look at verse 13. And we impart. Paul says we impart this wisdom in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Martin Luther says the Bible cannot be understood simply by study or talent. You must count only on the influence of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, there are a hundred applications that we could make, including praying as you read God's word. Including preparing your heart as you come to the worship service. Including praying fervently for your kids and your neighbors and your co-workers as you share the gospel. Because just like Nicodemus, you can be a devout religious person and not get it. Just like my friend Bob Franz, who came to church for years with his wife. Sat in sermon after sermon, liked the preacher. But never understood until God removed the blinders and opened his ears. Pray, friends. Pray. Doctrinal lesson. Spiritual wisdom is imparted by spiritual people. Pardon me. To spiritual people by the Spirit of God. He gives that and then he takes that lesson and he presses it right on the church. And sure, this could be a whole nother sermon. It could be three more sermons. What I just did could be ten sermons. I get it. There's so much there. Remember the disclaimer at the beginning of the sermon. But he said all of that for a purpose, which is why I want to stop with this next text rather than stopping at the end of two. He says all of that because he has a pastoral concern. Basically, Paul says this. You're not spiritually mature, even though you think you are. You are not spiritually mature, even though you think you are. Read chapter 3, verse 1 through 4. But I, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Verse 2, most commentators think that this is not Paul saying, I fed you with milk, not solid food, but Paul taking their accusation of him and turning it back on them, saying, oh, you think I fed you with milk? You think that's what I did when I was here? You think I fed you with milk, not solid food? Why? You weren't ready for it. And even now, you're still not ready for it. Why? Verse 3, you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving in a human way. For some of you say, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos. Are you not being, oh man, what a rebuke, merely human? Paul 
Paul's pastoral concern is that they think they're spiritually mature, but they're not. Here in this text, he talks about them being infants in Christ, not mature. So the word infant is is talking about spiritual babies. The word mature is talking about those who are spiritually mature, like adults. Please don't look at that and say there's two kinds of Christians. That is completely, the, that, that's precisely what Paul was arguing against here. It's not that there's two classes of Christians. Some are babies, some are adults. A Christian's a Christian. Either you're a spiritual person or you're a natural person. There's how many kinds of people? There's two. But as spiritual people, what is Paul saying in verse 1 through 4? You're acting like babies. In fact, the grace of God has made you spiritual people, but you are acting and living as if you're still natural people. People of the flesh. You see that? And and please don't take the, the, um, the milk and the solid food as a good thing. This, this is all in the context of, of, past, of, of Pastor Paul really getting on to these folks. It's not two kinds of spiritual food. What has he just taught us? There's only one kind of wisdom of God. It's the cross of Christ. But when I share that with you, you act like that's just mere milk. But we want to go on from there. I'll never forget I was preaching at a church and... Uh, I had been there for a number of weeks early and I was preaching from Colossians chapter one on the supremacy of Christ and a disgruntled member came up to me and he literally said this, I quote, if I hear about the supremacy of Christ one more time, As, as someone famously has said, the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity. It's not elementary school. The gospel is not spiritual milk. The gospel is the A through Z. The gospel is both the milk and the meat. The problem wasn't with Paul's teaching or Apollos' teaching or Peter's teaching. The, Paul, the problem was with the Corinthians hearing and the way they were perceiving it. They didn't need new food. They needed a new mentality. So here in verse 1 through 4, the problem is that you are spiritual people, but you're acting like infants. You're acting like people of the flesh. And then he says, you're just merely human. You're acting merely human. Why? Verse 3, because there's jealousy and strife. Jealousy is a desire for self. I want to have status. And there's strife. It's the actions taking to ensure that self gets what self wants. And he says, verse 4, aren't you just being too human in this? So those who thought they were spiritual were not. Because they didn't get it. Friends, I wonder about us. What does it mean to be spiritually mature? According to this text, 
spiritual maturity is living according to the mind of Christ. And the mind of Christ results in what? Loving others more than yourself. Serving others, not striving to see who has a better wisdom or a a better maturity. The mind of Christ unites the church around the cross of Christ. It doesn't divide in a power struggle under various doctrines, theologies, and human teachers. Spiritual maturity is not so much about how you know, how much you know, as it is about how you live. So spiritual maturity is living according to the indwelling spirit and the mind of Christ. There's a lot more we could talk about. But that's the point I wanted to press. I think all week long, we can just ask ourselves, what are we really passionate about? What are we spending our time doing? How do we respond to others? With and according to the mind of Christ? The mind of Christ results in a cross-shaped life. Doesn't it? Let's pray to that end. God, we are absolutely hopeless and helpless unless you intervene. Thank you so much for your grace to us through Christ and through your spirit. The whole Trinity is at work in saving sorry sinners like us. And why? Not because we deserve it, but because you're so merciful and gracious, loving and kind. And you have set your love on us and we praise you for our salvation from the moment that our eyes were opened until final glory. It's all of you. And I pray that you would allow us to more fully enter into the mind of Christ, which loves others sacrificially, which serves others selflessly. And may we be united in this mind and in this spirit. I pray that for our church as well as the church around the world, so that Jesus and his glory will be seen through his church. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen.